What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Thanks for joining us today on Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Uh, today, my guest is David Webb. Um, David is the uh, first PhD scholar who wrote his PhD on suicide, and he himself is a survivor of a suicide attempt. Uh, David is the author of the book, Thinking About Suicide, Contemplating and Comprehending the Urge to Die, and he is the international representative for the Australian Federation of Disability Organizations and lives in Melbourne, Australia. So thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. David Webb. Hi, Will. Thanks. It's really great to be here, and I really want to honor your work. You're, you're really having a growing influence on the peer recovery movement, both in the U.S. and Europe and in, in Australia and around the world, because you've really touched on something that's so, so important, this issue of suicide and the, the urge to die, the urge to kill ourselves. And so many of us who end up in the mental health system, this is really the central issue. It's the reason that people get locked up against their wills to protect people around suicide. It's the thing that is the most scary aspect often of having a mental health diagnosis. And you are taking a very innovative approach from your own personal experience of wanting to die and struggling with that and then attempting suicide and so I'm very honored to have you on, on the show. And maybe we should start out by, if you could just tell us, how did you get into this topic? How did you come to write the, uh, the book? And what's your own story around that suicide attempt? Yeah, uh, thanks, Will, and great to be here. Now, there's been two periods in my life when I've been suicidal. One was way back in 1979. And uh, as the years passed by, I thought what happened in 1979 was just some youthful aberration. But then it resurfaced in my life in the mid-'90s what I now call my four years of madness. Uh, I'm fairly typical. I self-medicated with illegal drugs. I was locked up just the once, and I found I really felt like I tried hard, really, really hard, to sort out whatever it was, and nothing worked. Uh, I was medicated. I was counselled. As I said, I was locked up once. I took refuge in the countryside. I lived for a while on a yoga ashram, and nothing seemed to work. And indeed, some of the treatment particularly the psychiatric treatment, actually made things uh, significantly worse. And so, and David, when you say that you went, you were in these four years of, of madness, what kinds of things were happening to you? Were you really very depressed or what was it that was part of that madness? I still can't say for sure uh, the cause of my suicidal feelings. For me, the trigger on both occasions, back in 79 and in 95, was the breakup of a very significant relationship. In the book, I try to explore um, the, the, the deeper causes of it. And the best I've sort of come up with is that I felt like I've lived my, my life with these deep feelings of sadness within me. And when these relationships collapsed, that sadness overwhelmed me. It was like the, the dam broke and, and I just was overwhelmed. Were you very withdrawn and just not connecting with other people and having a hard time sort of functioning in the world? Or I, I took relief. Like I said, I self-medicated with illegal drugs. Uh, the only antidepressant that's ever worked for me has been heroin. Uh, I do not advocate it as, a, as an antidepressant because it's got a lot of downsides to it, just like the prescribed antidepressants. 
So I got caught up in that world for a while. I, I was unable to work. I, I applied for a job and I, got ex- and I got accepted for the job and I was driving to work for my very first day at work and instead of turning right to go to the office, I turned left and went down to the dealer on the street and I never ever <laughs> did one day of work in that job. I just couldn't do stuff. I took refuge living in a yoga ashram for a while. That was fantastic. But whenever I stepped foot out of the ashram and came back to the city, I just went straight to the drugs again. I just, I just didn't want to be me. Eventually, I was on the methadone and I was on antidepressants and they put me on an antipsychotic drug as well. And I was just, I put on 20 kilos of weight. I just sat at home watching daytime TV and uh, everybody thought this was a terrific result because I wasn't using heroin and I wasn't sort of actively or overtly suicidal. And I lived like that for eight months and I realised this is, I don't want to live like this. And I decided I had to get off all these drugs. And I said, I don't care if I live or die, but I'm not going to live like this in a, a, a drugged up sort of fat zombie blob watching TV. Wow. So you went from, you went from the illegal drugs to the psychiatric drugs. Yeah, and that was the worst of it, that when I was on that full load of psychiatric drugs for like, like nearly a year, um, that was pretty much the worst year of my life. And I went to the doctor and said, look, this isn't, this isn't working. And he actually agreed with me. This was the methadone doctor. So we took the decision to come off the methadone, and that takes a long time. Yeah. Um, it took like uh, three months, over three months, which I found out later was actually very rapid detox from the methadone. Well, methadone is actually more addictive than heroin itself. It's more difficult to come off. Is that right? Yeah. Look, the word on the street is that you don't get off methadone without using some heroin to cushion the fall. (laughs) Um, And I was no exception. But I only took it. It was just at the very end of the methadone detox that I resorted to the heroin again. And that's the last time I've used heroin. That was back in 99. But while I was detoxing off the methadone, it was the Zyprexa that I specifically didn't want to be taking. That's the antipsychotic drug. I started forgetting to take it, um, sort of deliberately forgetting to take it. And I remember very clearly one day I went to take another Zyprexa and I put the tablet to my lips and I said, no, I just can't do it. And I've never taken that again. When I finally got off the methadone and it completed the rather agonizing withdrawals from the methadones, the doctor then said to me, well, do you, st- do you still want to get off the other drugs? And I told him, I haven't taken those other drugs for over a month. <laughs> and he, he wasn't very happy with me. He, th- um, he thought that was a dangerous thing to do. And, and what I've learned about these drugs since, it was, it was a dangerous thing to do. But uh, any of the psychiatric drugs, the prescribed psychiatric drugs, you really should never cold turkey from them. It's just got all sorts of risks. If people are taking those drugs and they want to go off them, it really needs to be done in a, uh, a careful, supervised like preferably by a sympathetic doctor that understands and respects your desire to get off those drugs and will assist you to get off them with a minimum of risk. Whereas I just took the decision and, look, I may have had some nasty withdrawal symptoms from those drugs, but they were lost in the, in the cloud of withdrawal symptoms from the methadone. During that four years, there was all sorts of embarrassing suicidal gestures, I might call them now. But there's two serious attempts that put me into hospital, uh, both of which I don't know why they didn't work. But um, you see, there's many myths with suicide. And 
people say, surely it can't be that, that difficult to kill yourself. And look, I was one of those people, I just wanted to go to sleep and not wake up. I'm not a violent person. I'm not a brave person. Uh, I tried a couple of times to jump off a high place and I just couldn't push myself over the edge. I don't know anything about guns. I wouldn't know where to get one. I wouldn't know how to fire one. Um, but even if I did, I doubt if I would have used them. I don't know. So for me, it was very much um, I just wanted to take a drug and not wake up. And drugs are uh, the least reliable form of, of suicide. But there were a couple of serious ones that put me into hospital. The last serious suicide attempt was, in fact, shortly after I detoxed from all those drugs. I was off the drugs, but I was still very unwell. I mean, I was physically unwell, but I was emotionally and I would say spiritually just exhausted. And I was also exhausted in that I felt that I'd tried everything. You know, I'd done four years of, you know, hospitals, doctors, retreats, ashrams, medication, counselling, talking therapy. I really felt like I'd tried everything and if anything... It was worse than it was at the beginning of the four years. And so I was just utterly exhausted. A lot of people talk about how there is usually some ambivalence um, in the suicidal person. And that rings true for me. You know, I still sort of recognise there is this life force within me that, you know, wanted to stay alive. Um, and at times it was reasonably strong. Um, and at times um, it was very weak. But I just reached the point where I, I, life was intolerable and I couldn't see any alternative. Uh, and so I tried to snuff that life out. Wow. So then, so you tried to go to sleep without waking up with this massive dose of, of drugs and, and alcohol, and then you ended up waking up in, in the hospital that wasn't successful. Well, there was two occasions when that happened. Um, and one of them uh, ended up me being locked up because uh, the doctor asked me, well, where, where are you going to go if I discharge you from here? And I said, I, I didn't have anywhere to live at the time. And I said, I don't know. And he got so frustrated with me, um, he actually sort of leapt to his feet and exclaimed, um, you know what your trouble is, David? You're not prepared to take responsibility for yourself. And, and I thought that was a very peculiar thing to say to someone who had tried to kill themselves just to couple of days beforehand. Your suicide attempt, in a sense, was like an effort to try and take responsibility or try and do something. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because that's, that's my feeling. This was my sort of last attempt at having some control over my life, which was to wipe it out. You know, when you wake up after a suicide attempt like that, and particularly if it's, you've, you've been revived in hospital, it's a pretty awful feeling. I, there's, there's no sense of failure quite like failing at suicide. And so the psychiatric treatments that you received, the hospitalizations, none of it really helped you at all. No. Uh, the time I was locked up really it was only a couple of days. Uh, I'd spent a, a little bit of time on the psychiatric wards as a voluntary patient. And basically it was the psychiatrist makes his diagnosis, which for me was major depression, um, and then take the pills. And after he thought the pills were having some effect... I was discharged. Uh, on one occasion, I was just, that, that's what happened. On another occasion, I didn't want to take the pills. So he just said, well, there's nothing we can do for you here if you don't take your pills. And he discharged me on that occasion. And the time when I, I did take the pills, I mean, I was ready to leave. I was bored witless after three weeks on the psychiatric ward. It's, it's, it's 
dumbfounding, really, how incredibly dull and lifeless and boring and empty the psychiatric wards are. I mean, I sort of fled the psychiatric ward. I was afraid I might go mad there. Uh, one of the other psychiatric interventions that was particularly unhelpful was when the psychiatrist, um, he cranked my antidepressants up to more than the maximum recommended dose, which the only real effect that seemed to have was that I couldn't sleep. So then he decided to add an antipsychotic to my drug mix and the one he chose was Zyprexa. Uh, I now know that what he told me in order to get me to take the antipsychotic was was a lie, basically. He tricked me, he deceived me into agreeing to take this drug. What did he say that was uh, deceptive? Uh, he said that this drug would act as like a catalyst to boost <laughs> the serotonin, the serotonin uh, effect of the antidepressant. Plus, of course, it would have a sedative effect, so hopefully I might be able to get some sleep. It's funny, here we have the... And so when I agreed to take it, he, he got on the phone and, and got the authorization for me to get the drug. And I heard him speaking to the people down the phone. And at one stage, he gave them all my details. And, and at one stage, he said schizophrenia. And when he got off the phone, I said, what was that when you said schizophrenia? And he said, well, this, this drug is really approved for the treatment of schizophrenia. And I said, but doc, I haven't got schizophrenia, have I? He said, no, 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 not at all. Um, so why did you say schizophrenia to the, the PBS people? He said, oh, sometimes best to tell them what they, what they expect to hear. That was just what he said in order to get them to approve the, uh, the medication. Wow. You know, he deceived me. He deceived the authorities um, in order to put me on this drug, which I now know why he wanted me on the drug. It's a drug to subdue me. You know, it just, it's... You know, people have taken them, referred to them as zombie drugs, and that was my experience of them. They're the drugs that switch you off. Uh, look, in the, in the end, um, what really sort of set me free, or we can use the word recovery if you like, was what I now call spiritual self-inquiry. Around about the middle of uh, 1999, it was sort of like there's all these jigsaws, uh, jigsaw pieces on the table, and they're they're slowly jiggling into place um, and around the middle of the year, the, the last piece of the jigsaw jiggled into place uh, and, and the spiritual self-inquiry that came to mean so much for me, it is within the tradition of yoga but it's not a yoga practice. It's, it's, it, look, I, I elaborate in the book. It's called the yoga of self-inquiry and it asks the question, who am I? And, and then says... You cannot find the answer to that question in or by the mind. The answer to that question is um, is to be found in the silence of a quiet mind, which is really nothing more than what all the great meditation traditions are saying, if you look at them. I, I'd been attending to this spiritual self-inquiry for probably a year or more, thinking about it and reading about it. With the typical Western educated mind, I was struggling with it. I thought it's too easy or it doesn't make sense or trying to find some flaw in it. But somehow bit by bit, all the pieces came together. And I think one of the factors was the exhaustion that I talked about before, that I just felt there was absolutely nowhere else to go. And another factor was I even felt that I wasn't allowed to die. Now, I don't want to overstate that because it sounds like 
there's some sort of higher power that's not allowing it. That's not what I mean at all. I just, I just felt that I was such a complete and utter misfit that I couldn't even kill myself. And I really felt, particularly after four years of trying everything that I felt I could, I just had nowhere else to go. I, I wasn't even uh, permitted to die. And so finally, I, look, to me it's a wonderful and beautiful word, um, which is to surrender. And I surrendered to the silence within me, uh, the silence of the, the empty space in which the mind comes and goes. And sort of almost overnight, everything changed because in that silence, I discovered uh, an inner peace. And I realised that this inner peace had been with me all my life. So after 45 years of thinking that my innermost self was this very sad person, that in fact my innermost self was this unbelievable, bottomless, endless, timeless sense of peace. I mean, I also felt like a complete idiot because here I had spent 45 years sort of searching for something and there it was inside me all the time. David, I remember reading in one of your interviews that you said you wouldn't give up your suicidal feelings and your suicidal experience. Um, do, you, do you think that that's true? Is that an important part of you? Yeah, I think what I said is that I'm grateful for them. And, and that's and some people find that a bit odd. But I'm grateful for them because I can't imagine being where I am today or who I am today if I hadn't had those difficult times. Given that that's been my personal journey to this point, yes, I'm grateful for it. But then I also very quick must say that I do not advocate suicidality as a spiritual practice. But for somehow for you, it played a role in leading you to this place of surrender and discovering this peace within yourself. It really motivated me, sort of pushed me into having to attend to that question, who am I? You know, I'd run out of excuses and I'd run out of any other options. I, I, like I said, there was, it really was my last shot and I, found, and I found peace. For the first few months after that, it was really quite a, a novel feeling for me to actually want to, to be alive. I talked about wanting to walk in the world again for the first time in four years. Although I was just happy to want to be living again, I was still curious to make some sort of sense of all of what I'd been through. So I went down to the library and I got some books uh, out of the library on suicide. I, I wondered afterwards whether the, the people at the library were worried about this person taking out all these books on suicide. But, and then I started surfing the internet and I found lots of literature and very learned papers about it. And I, I started to get very uncomfortable with what I was reading. And I realised it was because I couldn't recognise myself, my own story, in what all these experts were saying about this issue of suicide. And then I realised there was something else that was missing in that the voice of the actual suicidal person was almost totally absent. Now, I've since learned <laughs> over the years that, uh, and the work that you and many others are doing about the, the wonderful stuff happening around the world at the moment about bringing the consumer perspective into mental health in more general terms. Yeah, these days, and in my research, I talked about the first-person voice. So this is the first-person knowledge, the knowledge, the expertise of those who know about 
something, in my case it was suicidal feelings, through having lived those experiences. So this is the first person knowledge. Mm -hmm. And why is that important? Um, what is it that's missing from the official perspective? And what is it that you think is, is really needs to change in the way we understand suicide and respond to it? I, I, I find it mind-boggling that people can think that they can know about these deeply personal, invisible feelings, thoughts, whatever, uh, from a purely objective or what I prefer to call third-person perspective. Um, you know, what we're talking about is what we feel and think. And, and I'll particularly mention in a feminist uh, scholarship, uh, there's no way I could have done my PhD if there hadn't previously been a generation of feminist scholars who were taking the political slogan of the personal is political into academia and saying the personal is also academic and scholarly and, and needs to be part of our uh, academic and scholarly inquiry. But in mental health, over the same period, it seems to be going in the opposite direction. Uh, increasingly, mental health is seen through the eyes of biological psychiatry, where it's all about brains and neurotransmitters, and what the actual person is thinking and feeling has become increasingly irrelevant to the study of uh, psychiatric disorders. You, often, you're not really aware that the person that you turn to for help is treating you as a black box of symptoms and seeing only their diagnosis, only the illness. Um, it's particularly problematic given the scientific status of the illnesses that they're diagnosing is pretty dodgy. So, so I was pretty appalled at what I found when I was looking at this literature of suicidology, and that's another word people think I make it up. No, there is suicidology is uh, an established and legitimate uh, discipline, academic discipline. Uh, mm -hmm. There is the American Association of Suicidology, for instance. So anyway, when I was looking at the literature of suicidology, first of all, I noticed that the actual suicidal person was virtually invisible. Or well, I described it as that these experts were looking at people like me through the wrong end of the telescope, so that we were just these tiny little specks on the distant horizon. And I thought that was wrong. But then I was also, given my own experience... I was also looking for any uh, discussion or consideration of uh, spirituality and how spiritual values, our spiritual needs, um, our sense of self might be discussed in suicidology. And that was virtually completely absent. <laughs> it was just not on the radar at all. I'm not saying that all suicidal crises are necessarily spiritual. I, I'm certainly not saying spirituality is some sort of universal panacea for people um, struggling with suicidal feelings. But I do say that it was certainly important to me and I believe it's certainly important to a lot of other people and therefore it should be important to suicidology. So I just kept bumping into all these walls of prejudice and dogma. So I thought, I'll do something about that. <laughs> Suicidology these days is very much dominated by the medical model of biological psychiatry and few things irritate me more than the statement that I hear far too often which, which is that depression causes suicide. I think that that idea has been so thoroughly sold uh, to the community that most people, at least here in Australia, think depression causes suicide or that suicide is caused by depression. Now, that is not a statement that stands up to any serious scientific scrutiny. 
it's, it's really public relations. It's a simple and simplistic idea that has been used to promote the medicalisation of um, suicide and to promote the medicalisation of so-called depression. And I believe it's doing great harm. It's dehumanising experiences and they might be difficult and grim and challenging and frightening. Uh, frightening for the person themselves and frightening for the person around them. But I don't think it's helpful to try and reduce these complex, mysterious experiences to this shallow, superficial, third-person knowledge of, of medical science. It's, it's, it's just unhelpful. In fact, it's, I've reached the point where I've, I, I think it's just so unhelpful, it's actually the biggest obstacle or one of the biggest obstacles that we face in suicide prevention. What are some of the other beliefs? I know that they also will say that it's a cry for help or that it's actually a rare emergency situation. There's a whole bunch of myths around suicide and one of them is that it's a cry for help. And look, it might often be a cry for help, but you'll also hear people say that it's just a cry for help. Another one you'll hear is that it's attention-seeking behaviour. Another one is that people that talk about suicide don't actually uh, go and do it. There's, there's lots of myths. And the experts do debunk many of these myths uh, as they should and correctly. I say there's the, the popular myths, which is some of the ones we've just mentioned, but there's the professional myths. And it's the professional myths that I believe are the most dangerous and at the top of the professional myths around suicide is the one we've been talking about, that suicide is caused by a medical illness caused, called depression. That, that's a myth that has become so pervasive that we're just not looking beyond that because it says that if depression causes suicide, then we need to treat the depression and we stop looking for what's actually causing the depression. Uh, like virtually all of the diagnostic categories in modern psychiatry, the best that can be said about their scientific status is that they are, they are all an hypothesis, they're hypothetical. But they've not yet been validated, uh, not by a long shot. And in fact, there's mounting evidence that as hypotheses, um, they're very weak. And what are some of the other um, professional myths that you would want to help um, uncover? Well, I've heard people say that suicide is a gendered issue, that in most countries, including Australia and I believe the US, that it's roughly three to four times as many men suicide than do, women's, than do women. Um, but then you've got to also look at the, the other data that's generally accepted in, in many countries like Australia and the US is that it's about three to four times as many women attempt suicide. See, another myth is that suicide, the study of suicide, has to be the study of people who have died by suicide. And these people are saying rather pedantically that suicide by definition means there's a dead body somewhere. And I've heard this stated and written in various ways that it's actually incredibly offensive to people like me because what they're saying is the only genuine suicide attempt is a successful one. But putting aside the offence... I think it's also not helpful because they then contradict themselves with their own data where there's, there's really no very good strong predictors of suicide. There's lots of studies to try and look at the, the factors that lead people to suicide. But, but one of the strongest predictors is a previous suicide attempt. <laughs> now, the first time I read that, I almost fell off my chair and, and I realised, oh, suicide's just like everything else. It takes practice. And, and I laughed 
people don't like me laughing about suicide because that's that's considered naughty too. Most people who suicide don't get it right the first time. Some do. Um, and a previous suicide attempt is the only sort of strong predictor of future suicide. Then surely the people who have survived suicide attempts have got something interesting to say. But the experts will say, no, 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 these people haven't got anything interesting to say because the only genuine suicide attempt is a successful one. And Wade, just help us with some of the other, what are some of the other myths? Because I know that you're also trying to address the fact that suicidal feelings are actually a lot more common, that they're not necessarily something that needs to be seen as this extreme um, symptom of a disease that has to be focused on and treated in an urgent emergency way. I did a little calculation for an article I wrote uh, a while back then I figured somewhere between two and five million people in Australia have very seriously considered killing themselves. Now, that's a huge number of people. I mean, that's between 10 and 25% of the population have their own first-person knowledge of feeling suicidal. That's a huge wealth of knowledge that is just not being tapped into at all. You know, we, we need to stop pretending that it's this rare thing and that it's this sort of aberration. It's, it's very, very common. Uh, and I think we really need to regard it as a, a, a very common, natural, normal, um, acceptable part of many people's lives. And I go further for those who are actively suicidal. And in some ways, this is almost the most heretical thing that I say, and I know it does upset some people, but I encourage suicidal people to respect their feelings, indeed to, to honour them as special and meaningful and significant um, for the very simple reason is that they are special, meaningful and significant. Uh, so treat them with, with that respect and honour, and I go further and to say regard them as sacred feelings. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio, and we're speaking with David Webb. He is the first PhD scholar who's written a PhD on suicide who has himself survived a suicide attempt. He's the author of Thinking About Suicide, Contemplating and Comprehending the Urge to Die, and is the international representative of the Australian Federation of Disability Organizations. So we need to not suppress these feelings, but also not to indulge them. And that can be a bit of a tightrope to walk. But I say somewhere between suppressing and indulging, there is a space where you can just be with these feelings. And David, do you, do you believe that it's important for communities and people to be talking about these feelings and getting together and having opportunities to discuss them openly? Because one of the things that happens is that it really they really go underground. And as soon as someone even starts to mention suicidal feelings, immediately there's talk of let's call police, let's get them to the hospital, let's intervene in them. Yeah, the, the, the myths and prejudices that we were talking about just before, most of them carry with them lots of negative judgment. And suicidal people know this. Um, we, you know, we're acutely aware that if we share our suicidal feelings with someone, that they might respond with these very heavy negative judgments. So what we do is we might throw out these little clues, these signals, and to test how people might react. And if they react in the way that many people do with the negative judgments, we, we back off and we go underground, which I think is toxic. You know, that makes things worse. Uh, there's good reasons 
why we go underground. Uh, one is, you know, none of us like to be judged negatively in, in that way. But also, you run the risk of getting locked up. And so this is where it really does become a significant issue for our mental health system. Here in Australia, a risk of suicide is one of the reasons why you're likely to be locked up by our mental health system. So we have the situation that our mental health system, which is meant to exist to help people who are suicidal, is actually one of the reasons why suicidal people hide from the system that's meant to be there to help them. <laughs> I've met numerous people now who typically they've already had their own bad experience of our mental health system, but they will work very hard to make sure that they have nothing further to do with that system. And these include people who uh, might still be struggling with very difficult emotional, psychological, spiritual issues that are causing a lot of distress, but they're actually avoiding the system that's in place that's supposed to be there to help them. It's, it's a bizarre and really stupid situation. Yeah, the people end up hiding their feelings and not talking about them out of fear of being uh, forced into the hospital or having an overreaction or having some kind of coercion happen to them. It becomes very counterproductive. And so what, what, what do you think would be, you, you've talked about changing community attitudes and creating mentally healthy communities. What kinds of things should we be doing as a society to create a society that's actually more um, healthy and has better attitudes and actually helps prevent suicide? I believe the key to suicide prevention is what we might call mentally healthy communities. What would a mentally healthy community look like? What would it do? Now, that's a, that's a huge question and one that I think it would be good for all of us to spend some time on. One of the things that a mentally healthy community does is that it is capable of having a sensible conversation about suicide. I, I live in a community that is not capable of having a sensible conversation about suicide. All of the fears and prejudices just kick in immediately, really powerfully, and we don't do it. We, we prefer to stay silent. There's this toxic taboo. But there are just a few examples of people who are daring to talk about it in an open and honest kind of way. And you know, that's the real key for suicide prevention. And it's got nothing to do with our mental health system or our mental health laws or medical treatment. It's about a community that is sufficiently grown up that it can talk sensibly about this issue that's, that's widespread throughout society. If you think about it, if someone's feeling suicidal and they live in a community that they have witnessed talking sensibly about it, then hopefully before those suicidal feelings get you know, too strong, too overwhelming, they might feel safe to talk about what they're feeling with people in their community. Now, whether it's their family or their workplace or the church or, you know, the, the social groups that they mix with doesn't really matter. But to be able to share these feelings with someone else and feel safe in doing so, I really believe is the key to, to reducing the suicide toll. And what would you say to someone who might argue, well, look, you can't just talk about suicide openly. That's going to trigger people to commit suicide or that's going to plant the idea of suicide in people's minds. Because that's a really common belief that we just can't talk about this, that if it comes up, we just have to evaluate the person for their risk factor and then get them to the hospital. And beyond that, we just shouldn't talk about it. What would you say to that person who would say that actually this is going to be counterproductive talking about it? 
Well, the first thing that has to be said is that the statement that talking about suicide can make someone suicidal is just bizarre. I mean, talking about jumping off a cliff doesn't make me want to jump off a cliff. I think what you're referring to, there is a legitimate fear around what's sometimes called copycat suicides and things like that, but it's, it's very exaggerated. Sure, copycat suicides do occur uh, and we need to be alert to that and be able to respond to that. Again, a mentally healthy community would have uh, strategies for minimising the risk of copycat suicides, for instance, when a high-profile person suicides. But the, the comment that you made is it's another example of there's just this incredible reluctance in the community to talk about it. And that reluctance comes from fear. And, and look, I guess I find that fear understandable because the thing about suicide is that if someone goes ahead with it, that's it. There's no second chances. There's the sort of finality of suicide that really freaks people out, and understandably, uh, it freaks me out. People come up to me and tell me it's, it's sort of part of my work, I guess, that people do approach me and share their suicidal feelings with me. And sometimes I say to them, well, slow down. You know, what you're telling me is, is really scary. So let's be honest about the fear here as well. But it, it's, it's not an excuse for just keeping our head in the sand I don't know of any public health issue that's been resolved by not talking about it. And I think there's also the fear that, well, if someone is suicidal, we just can't just talk to them about it. We have to just get them to, to a safe place immediately. Again, I'd say that's part of the panic response. You know, when people share their suicidal feelings with me, the very first thing I say is I'm, I'm not a counsellor or a therapist of any kind. So if that's what you're looking for, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Um, but what I can do hopefully, is I'm willing to share some of my story with you if you're interested. Secondly, I'm willing to listen to your story respectfully, hopefully. And then thirdly, I say, and if you're interested in my research, I can tell you a bit about that. Well, so far, people don't seem very interested in my research. We, we never get beyond sharing our stories. And when I say I'm not a therapist, the reaction so far has been, oh, thank heavens for that. I've had it up to here with therapists and counsellors. Yeah, that's actually my experience too. I'm actually a therapist now, but I always preface that by saying, but I'm also someone who has been diagnosed and been in hospitals and that often I get a sigh of relief from some of the people that I work with when I explain that. That sigh of relief, you said it, that, that's, that's the most common reaction. And I'm, uh, I've come across some people here in Australia that are doing amazing work at a very grassroots level in, in small country towns where they're doing the training to try and reduce suicide in their communities after a spate of suicide some time ago. And it all revolves around asking the question. And the question is, if you think a person might be suicidal, you ask them, are you thinking of killing yourself? And so far, the, the reports seem to be that if someone is feeling suicidal and they get asked that question, there's this sigh of relief. And one of the reasons we don't ask that question is because we're terrified of the answer being yes. <laughs> um, and what do we do then? And what do you think also of things that are often taught in therapy schools? One of them is to get a contract with the person I promise that I won't commit suicide. There's actually, I understand there's research now that the, the idea of a contract doesn't really help. Well, I think contracts are just comical. Um, I woke up in hospital once and the doctor who revived me, who I'd never seen before, asked me to promise her that I wouldn't do it again. 
And I said, are you, are you crazy? I mean, I can't make that promise to my brother sitting beside my bed in tears. How on earth can I make that promise to you, you complete stranger? I, I mean, I, I laughed at it, which was not, not good for my relationship with the doctors. But uh, So I, I find the contract thing sort of just comical, really. And yeah, I believe the research indicates that they're, they're really not very useful. So someone might be thinking about suicide, but okay, how serious has that thinking developed? And it's pretty obvious stuff. You know, do they have a plan? If they do, then that means that, yeah, they're reasonably well, well down the track here. Do they have a date? If they've got a date set for when they're going to do it, then, okay, they're, they're seriously uh, well down the path. Or have they done things like burned photographs or destroyed journals or done things to start preparing for that date? Or do they actually have the means? Have they acquired whatever they're going to be using? You know, if you've got a plan and if you've got a date and if, you've got, and, and if you're starting to tidy up your affairs for after you've gone, then that's sort of fairly well-developed suicidal feelings. And they're, they're cues or clues for you know, asking the question, you know, <laughs> are you feeling suicidal? But earlier on, there's things like if people are saying things like, oh, I sometimes think my family would be better off without me or my, my husband or my wife, or the world would be better off without me. Or I actually think a lot of this is really common sense. If you hear someone saying things that make you wonder whether they might be thinking of suicide, then there's at least a chance that they are. You, could, you can maybe ask some questions before asking the big question, which is, are you feeling suicidal? But see, I think the professionalisation of sort of everything these days is disempowering us. We, we hand over to the experts, we hand over to the professionals. And I say we've got to reclaim our personal power, both as individuals and communities, and that we can't pass the buck on this to the experts because it's not working. Yeah. Uh, and the experts <laughs> have got it seriously wrong in my book. And what are your thoughts about the use of force? Because I think that sometimes people do want a safer place and they do want to go into a hospital, but often professionals are taught, well, we have to report, it's a mandatory reporting, and then we're required if this person is suicidal, if they're a high risk, then whether or not that person wants to go to the hospital or not, we're going to force them, we're going to lock them up, we're going to put them in a locked unit for their own good to keep them, to keep them safe. What are your thoughts about that? Look, there's, there's two issues here, and now we're sort of getting a little bit into the human rights work that I've done. We really need to distinguish between uh, the right to liberty and the right to refuse unwanted medical treatment. So I will possibly get in trouble with some of my fellow psych psychiatric survivor political campaigners, but I do believe that there are occasions when we can claim a collective right to override an individual's right to liberty and detain that person if we believe that there is a very real, serious and imminent risk that they're about to suicide, hovering at the edge of the cliff sort of scenario. But I hesitate to say that because that's what we currently have. But when we detain them, we take them to a psychiatric ward and that's completely unacceptable. I say if we are going to claim the collective right to deprive them of their right to liberty, then we take upon ourselves the obligation to detain them to a place of safety. If, if we're not prepared to take on that obligation, then we shouldn't be detaining them. You know, we cannot detain someone, apprehend them, deprive them of their liberty, and then take them to a place that's unsafe. 
like a psychiatric ward? Our psychiatric wards are seriously unsafe places. And the main reason they're unsafe is because you will most likely get medical treatment against your wishes. So although I can see circumstances where we might detain people, not because of a medical diagnosis, because of what their their actual behaviour at the time, that's an important distinction. It's not because of any medical diagnosis. I can see occasions when we might do that. I, I do not know of any occasion when psychiatric treatment can legitimately be forced upon person against their wishes. To me, psychiatric force is assault. And I'm still looking for somebody to explain to me how assaulting a suicidal person is meant to help them. To detain someone to a safe place, as I've just described, we have no laws that really accommodate that, apart from our mental health laws. And they're a disaster because this is why I said we need to separate detention from treatment, um, from forced treatment. Uh, Detention under rare and extreme and very clear circumstances, I would argue, could be justified. But involuntary psychiatric treatment can never be justified. And who might make that assessment about whether it's, it's justified? I mean, on behalf of the community, you, you would argue that it wouldn't be a medical professional or a, psychi- or a psychiatrist. It would be... No, look, I'm, I'm really talking about pretty rare and extreme cases. I mentioned the person hovering at the edge of the cliff. So it, 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 it might be properly trained police, which I realize might be asking for a lot. But more likely, it's, it's the community itself. I mean, the first people that are going to be noticing this extreme behavior will be the, you know the people around the person and 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 look i think that happens all the time already i was just thinking that i mean i think there's often cases where people will grab someone or hold them down or hold them back or pull away pills or pull away a gun yeah, yeah. from them or interrupt or break down their door and do things that are very intrusive. Absolutely. Or, or, or take their car keys off them or all sorts of things. Um, you know, we do that as a community and we do that as a responsible community. You know, drafting this into some sort of legislation is a curly question. I'll leave that to the lawyers. But again, it's an example of, you know, I think we as a communities and individuals need to reclaim our power and our authority and and take these actions at times when we feel it's necessary. But coming back to the mental health system, one thing I haven't said, because I I regard suicide as best understood as a crisis of the self. And I, I say that very deliberately in contrast to the view that suicide is caused by a medical condition caused depression, called depression. If someone is having a crisis of the self, sufficient for them to be seriously thinking about killing themselves, then in our current system, you might find yourself on the psychiatric ward, whether voluntary or involuntary. And quite likely, if you find yourself on the psychiatric ward, you're pretty at the end of your tether. it, It might be your last resort, your last option, your last possibility to try and find some way of not killing yourself. So you're really clutching at straws at this stage, and that, that many people's experience. But then you find yourself on the ward, and what happens? You get assaulted. Really, how is that meant to help someone who's feeling that life's not worth it anyway? You know, this this is you reaching out for your last, clutching at the last straw to stay alive, and you get assaulted. Yeah, you're often at your most vulnerable, your most fragile, your most needing human connection, and then you're put in this very dehumanizing, sterile, 
environment that's based on control and based on on intervening in people and and uh, as you say assaulting them and if you say no i don't want to take that drug then it will be forced into your body i mean it's it's an incredible violation i mean some some people call it torture and i don't disagree with that other people i've met compare involuntary psychiatric treatment to rape and this includes women i know who have been raped and they say involuntary psychiatric force is just like rape when i call it assault i'm i'm using moderate language yeah i mean at the very at the at the very least we have to call it what it is which is an assault on your on your body and mind and i i can't think of anything less helpful to inflict on a person who's feeling suicidal David, we are just about out of time. Can you give um, listeners your contact information and also remind us the name of your book? Uh, the book is called Thinking About Suicide, and there is a companion website to the book, which is called thinkingaboutsuicide.org. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about building a website called Talking About Suicide, where people can actually join in with a, a conversation because what my work calls for more than anything else is a a broad, ongoing community conversation about suicide in the, in the way that we've talked about. David Webb, thank you for joining us on Madness Radio. Thanks, Will. It's been great. You've been listening to an interview with David Webb. He is the first PhD who has written his dissertation on suicide by someone who's survived a suicide attempt. He's the author of Thinking About Suicide, Contemplating and Comprehending the Urge to Die, and he's the international representative for the Australian Federation of Disability Organizations and lives in Melbourne, Australia. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is co-sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Hosted by Will Hall, music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, including KBOO in Oregon, WXOJ and WBCR in Massachusetts, Alaska's KWMD, and WPRR in Michigan. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net. <laughs>